Welcome to a special podcast by Charles Adonetto. Welcome to our latest podcast in the time of social distancing. We have a really special one today, uh, Current Issues in Ethics. As always, the materials are going to be in the Hightail site that you find uh, in the program notes and uh, in my emails. Uh, and there will be a CoJet certificate at the end of those materials. If you do want CoJet credit for this class, go ahead and sign that and return that to Esther or to Raj. Our presenters today, and uh, Margaret Downey presents for us at least once a year, and we really appreciate it. She is a tremendous resource. Uh, she is a former Superior Court judge, a former uh, Court of Appeals judge, and currently serves as the Executive Director and the Staff Director for the Arizona Commission on Judicial Conduct and the um, Arizona Judicial Ethics Advisory Committee. And our other presenter is our uh, presiding judge, the Honorable Keith Russell of the East Mesa Justice Court. Uh, he's a former county assessor and just has a tremendous bench presence. Uh, and that's why it's always wonderful to have him as a co-presenter when we do talk about ethics. And uh, we'll go ahead and get right started. Thank you, Charlie, and thank you for inviting me to speak with you today about several topical subjects in the field of judicial ethics. Um, I have three general topics that I hope to cover today. The first are COVID-19 related ethical issues. The second, um, which is also very timely, deals with judges' involvement with social movements, including their participation in rallies, marches, and protests. And then because it is an election year, the last um, topic area will be about campaign and political activities, and in particular, how you can avoid judicial conduct complaints in this area. Um, I encourage Judge Russell and Charlie to interject along the way if they have something to add or to clarify in my remarks. Um, as Charlie said, I, I was a trial judge for 11 years, and no offense to those of you listening, but I'm kind of glad that I'm not a trial judge right now. Um, you all are facing so many new and unique challenges during this pandemic, as if your jobs weren't difficult enough before. Um, judge Russell is going to speak with you in a little bit about some of the more practical issues that you face on a day-to-day -day basis in managing your calendars and litigants, monitoring the health of yourself, your staff, others who come to the court, and for me, mastering the remote technology that many of us had never heard of six months ago. Um, I am going to focus on the ethical issues. And strange times like this call for some unusual measures, and one of those unusual measures would be the multiple administrative orders that the Arizona Supreme Court has issued since the pandemic began. Um, don't kill the messenger here, but I wanna tell you that these administrative orders are not aspirational, they're orders, they're not voluntary, they're orders. And I don't think you can rebuff those administrative orders with um, rejoinders like, well, I'm an independent elected official, which really, if you think about it, is just a somewhat nicer way of saying you're not the boss of me. Um, the reality is, and I'm going to take you through the legal reason this is so, is that the Arizona Supreme Court, when it comes to these administrative matters, is the boss of you. Um, the slide two that you can look at has two provisions from the Arizona Constitution that are relevant. Um, and one of the things I wanna point out, because I know some of you might have experience in the legislative or executive branches of government, is that the Arizona Constitution um, organizes the judicial branch very differently from the other two branches. Unlike elected officials in the executive branch or the legislative branch, the Arizona Constitution makes clear that the Arizona Supreme Court is the boss of you when it comes to administrative orders. Um, as you can see on the slide, Article 6, Section 3 expressly grants the Supreme Court administrative supervision over all the courts of the state. And Article 6, Section 5 gives the Supreme Court the power to make rules relative to all procedural matters in any court. Um, so the Judicial Ethics Advisory Committee, which Charlie mentioned that I staff, has gotten some inquiries across the state from judges who want to know whether it's an ethical violation not to comply with the terms of the administrative orders from the Supreme Court. And the committee has answered that, yes, it is an ethical violation. 
You can't simply ignore the orders. I suppose there could be ways to legally challenge the validity of those orders if you had a reasonable basis for doing so, but you can't simply ignore them. Um, so there are several provisions in the Code of Judicial Conduct that also relate to this subject. Um, impropriety is a term that appears throughout the code. Um, you have to avoid impropriety and the appearance of impropriety. And the code defines impropriety as including any conduct that violates the law or court rules. Um, the code also defines law to include court rules. Um, rule 1.1, as you can see on the slide, requires you to comply with the law. And also the code makes clear that just because a judge may disagree with the law, he or she is, re is required to enforce it as written. Um, there's also a provision that applies to presiding judges, um, which in this case would be Judge Russell and to some extent Judge Welty, but they have an additional duty under the code. Rule 2.12b says that a judge with supervisory authority for the performance of other judges shall take reasonable measures to ensure that those judges properly discharge their judicial responsibilities. Um, and I'm sure you've read the Supreme Court's multiple administrative orders. Uh, I think the most recent one that I've seen is 2020-114. And that requires judicial leadership, which includes presiding judges, to implement COVID-19 screening protocols for court personnel and judicial officers. And more importantly, the administrative order states that court leadership shall require, that's pretty important language, shall require, court personnel and judicial officers to wear their own or court-provided masks, face coverings, or face shields when having any in-person contact with other personnel or the public. Um, so shall is not a discretionary word. Shall is um, synonymous with must. So those really are not optional aspirational guidelines. They're, they're court orders. Um, you know, I don't think Arizona will need to go this direction, but there have been at least two states across the country who have felt the need to issue press releases telling their judges, hey, our high court administrative orders are orders. Um, Georgia recently issued one, and I mean, I think it kind of captures the sentiment of, of, of people on issues that could be reasonably debated. But the Georgia Judicial Qualifications Committee issued a press release to their judges saying, we recognize that opinions may differ regarding how best to handle the novel circumstances that our world faces today. The fact remains, however, that Chief Justice Melton's order is an overriding directive to the courts and refusals to abide by the order may require disciplinary action. I mean, it, it's a bit heavy handed, but then again, if judges aren't complying with the order, I understand why it was issued. Arkansas also issued a similar press release and it focuses very heavily on the rule of law and how judges need to really um, exemplify compliance with the rule of law, which would include abiding by the Supreme Court's order. Um, the Arkansas Judicial Discipline Commission talks about their Supreme Court's order saying, it is clear and detailed, the order is not a suggestion, it is an order, full compliance is expected, willfully refusing to abide by a Supreme Court order is not an option. Um, there are many opinions on how best to handle the crisis caused by the COVID-19 virus. However, the only opinion that matters are those of the Chief Justice and the Associate Justices of the Arkansas Supreme Court. So I think uniformly, from everything I can see across the country, um, there's a unified response saying that the highest court of a state has the administrative authority, and in our case, the constitutional authority, um, to direct measures during this pandemic that some judges may not agree with, may not like, but just as judges are required to comply with decisional law from the Arizona Supreme Court, it's the opinion of the Judicial Ethics Advisory Committee, and I can't speak for the Commission on Judicial Conduct because they haven't yet received a complaint and investigated it um, for refusal to abide by the order, but my I surmise that they would probably agree with the advice from the Judicial Ethics Advisory Committee that these orders are orders and that if a judge um, willfully fails to follow the orders, they're opening themselves up to a judicial conduct complaint. So um, I hope that's enough said about that topic. I don't know, Judge Russell or Charlie, whether there's anything else we need to clarify on the administrative orders, but 
You know, the one thing I might add on that, Judge Welty has issued an administrative order. He was given permission in the Supreme Court's order to have additional oversight for all the courts in each, each presiding judge of each county has additional oversight for in-person proceedings and how things are administered in the, their county. He has issued an order specifically for the justice courts. It very closely mirrors what Margaret just talked about in the Supreme Court order. His is 2020-079, and he talks about in justice court, the employees and judges shall wear, just the same as in the administrative order from the Supreme Court, there is an exception in the courtroom for identification witness, witnesses for identification purposes and to make the record clear. But if I can add to that, I did have a conversation a few weeks ago with a judge who said, well, in my courtroom, I, cannot, I don't have to wear a mask. And, and I had to say to him, well, you need to read those words more carefully. There are some exceptions, but they are limited, and they're primarily limited to the other people in the courtroom, not the judicial officer, unless there's an issue with the judicial officer not being able to make the record clear, or if there's nobody else in the courtroom with you and you're in a virtual meeting. So. Let me just encourage people to look at the words and read them a couple of times if you need to, to make sure you understand, because they do have the effect that Margaret was just talking about. And, and there can be consequences, I think, if, if we don't all adhere to the new instructions we've received in these administrative orders. Thank you, that was helpful. Um, I'm gonna move on to a somewhat happier topic, which well, I don't know if it's happy to you all, the suspension of some of the notice of change of judge rules, the rules that allowed a notice as a matter of right. Um, there are a couple of slides that, that discuss this topic. Um, I mean, it's always important for a judge to conduct sort of an internal conflict check analysis, um, but especially now when litigants and lawyers cannot use their peremptory notices. I think it's incumbent on judges to give some heightened scrutiny to any potential conflicts of interest you may have on cases and to remember that the code um, delineates a number of circumstances where you're required to recuse from a case, but it also has a big catch-all, which is um, whether continuing to serve would raise an appearance of impropriety. And the code expands on that topic by explaining that it's not a subjective test. It's not because most judges, I think, in their heart of hearts, believe that they can be fair, even if there is some um, relationship or association that might cause a question mark in someone else's mind. Because we're judges. We're trained to set aside irrelevant evidence, um, biases, and prejudices. But under the code, the test is whether a disinterested third party could reasonably question your impartiality. Certainly you have to, in the first analysis, be convinced that you can be fair and impartial because if you don't pass that test, if you don't believe you can be fair and impartial, you have to recuse. But even though you believe you can be fair and impartial, think about how it might appear to a disinterested third party. Um, and this is always true, but I think again, in the time of COVID, it's especially true that I would err on the side of making a disclosure when I had any question mark about whether or not my impartiality could reasonably be questioned. And, I, and the next slide um, talks about Rule 2.11c because this is a rule that's existed for uh, more than a decade. But I think um, we at the Commission see a number of occasions when judges don't really follow Rule 2.11c. Um, because it's got some pretty stringent requirements and sometimes they may seem um, unnecessary, but I'm gonna go over those requirements. So if you, if you have any doubt about whether someone might have an issue with you continuing to preside over a case, make a disclosure on the record about what the potential issue is. And then here's one of the, the things that catches judges unaware sometimes. You have to allow the parties, and if they're lawyers, um, to consider outside your presence and outside the presence of your court staff whether or not to waive disqualification. 
I'm guessing that the rationale for including that was the notion that, you know, if you sit sit there on the bench and say, okay, I go to church with this person and our grandkids um, are on the same swim team, do you have any problem with me continuing and you stare at them, there is, even though you don't intend it to be subtly coercive, there is perhaps a subtly coercive aspect of that. So I think that's probably why the rule requires that you allow the parties to talk about the information you've disclosed outside your presence and then assuming they agree that you can continue to preside over the case, you need to put that agreement on the record. Those are the two um, aspects of Rule 2.11c that we see judges um, kind of glossing over, doing it outside the presence, uh, allowing the discussion outside the presence of the judge and court staff, and then putting the agreement on the record if they say that you can continue. So those aren't really anything new in terms of um, COVID, but I just think now when um, parties cannot as easily change a judge, it's really important that you do the internal assessment of any potential appearance of impropriety. And, and I just um, want to add that outside the presence of the court does mean that when you return to chambers, if you have your FTR on, you do need to turn off your FTR. And the loss of the change of judge uh, is currently um, running through December 31st. Uh, so keep that in mind as well. Thank you for that. Um, so another topic that has some special significance, I think now, with, especially with the new technology, um, is the issue of ex parte communications. I mean, ex parte communications uh, are always an issue under the code. And, and I'm not in a courtroom, so I don't know all the potential um, risks that lurk out there for ex parte communications, but it, it occurs to me that some of them might include the fact that courts are now using email a lot more to communicate with parties, um, and also just the nature of the technology. You know, for example, um, I joined this this call today with just Charlie, and we're talking, and then Judge Russell comes on. Well, if, if Charlie had been a litigant, and I'm having a conversation with him about nothing about the case, but about the weather, you know, are we going to hit 115 again today, or what's the baseball season going to look like? Um, there's nothing inherently wrong with that because it's not about the substance of the case. But people are very suspicious, and if they come, it's the same when they come into the courtroom and you're on the bench and one side or one lawyer is there and you're just chit chatting. Again, it's not an ethical violation per se, but it opens you up to um, judicial conduct complaints because we get a lot of those complaints from litigants who say, the judge was already talking to the other side when I came in. Um, and, and often we do get the recordings and, and the recording is almost always your friend. So please always have the recording going whenever you're talking with any, um, any one side or one lawyer. Um, and, and usually it is nothing about the substance of the case, so it's not a code violation. But I just think that during these times, the risk of receiving an ex parte communication via, via email is higher. And you also need to make sure that your staff members understand what they should and shouldn't forward to you. Um, because if a person discusses their case with one of your staff members via email, um, the staff member shouldn't be forwarding that on to you because then you've been exposed to the substance of the case in an ex parte fashion. Um, so I encourage you to revisit Rule 2.9 in these times. Um, there are some exceptions when you can have ex parte communications, but again, there's a, a little um, nuance here that I think some judges miss out on. Rule 2.9 says that when circumstances require it, ex parte communications for scheduling, administrative, or emergency purposes that do not address substantive matters are permitted or permissible provided you, the judge, don't believe any party will gain a procedural, substantive, or tactical advantage, and you, the judge, make provision to promptly notify all other parties of the substance of the ex parte communication and give the parties an opportunity to respond. Um, so, you know, if, if a litigant emails or calls and says, I'm going to be late because I have a flat tire and I'm waiting for AAA, um, that's a permissible emergency purpose communication, but you have to be sure that you pass that information on. Um, so again, I would just be attuned and maybe 
Charlie or Judge Russell are aware of other opportunities for ex parte to creep in during these times that I haven't touched on, but it just seems to me there's more risk perhaps with that than there was before COVID. One of the biggest risks is we are conducting a lot of hearings telephonically um, and so I do see a situation where somebody falls off of the line and the judge may not know it and accidentally proceed. What, what, what would you do then? Well, that would, that would clearly be an inadvertent. Um, I, I don't know what the judge could do. If you're unaware that the person has fallen off the call and you continue, that's not going to be an ethical violation. Now, if the person somehow comes back on the call and says, I've missed the last five minutes, I think the judge probably has to go back and try to redo or, or um, recap what's happened. But I, I wouldn't view that as an ethical issue. And, and I guess I'll chime in. I think emails are an area. I actually yesterday had to start off a hearing by saying at 2.41 this morning, we got an email from the other side. I doesn't look like the other party was copied, so let's start with that. And you have to be thinking about on those emails if the other party is getting access to it, and if not, what, what Margaret had just talked about, make provisions to promptly notify. The easy way to do it is to start off with that notification. Yes. So the next issue that's not strictly COVID related, but it's just the times we're living in, um, judges' involvement with social issues, um, including rallies, marches, and protests, some examples might include um, Black Lives Matter, pro-law enforcement rallies, women's marches, immigration rallies. And as I say when I teach at New Judge Orientation, um, I, I think being a judge is one of the best jobs imaginable, but there are some trade-offs. And one of the trade-offs is that you give up a lot of the First Amendment rights that you enjoy as a private citizen. And this area is kind of um, proof of that. The Supreme Court of the United States has upheld most restrictions in this area um, on judges that are included in judicial conduct codes. Some of you who have been around a while may remember, gosh, I think it's been almost 20 years ago, um, the Supreme Court did strike down a part of a, of a code, a code provision that was in most codes across the state that at the time restricted judicial candidates from discussing their views on issues likely to come before them. Um, the Supreme Court held that was unconstitutional. Um, it up, that was called the announce clause. There was um, the announce and the commit clause. And the announce clause was, I, I agree with, pick, pick a case. Um, so the codes that prohibited judicial candidates from discussing that were struck down, but the parts of the code that prevent judges from saying, I will rule, in X manner when this case comes before me have withheld scrutiny. But anyway, the Supreme Court has, has been, um, has upheld almost all challenges to restrictions in the code that really do infringe on judges' First Amendment rights that they would enjoy otherwise. Um, and the Code of Judicial Conduct makes the point, it says judges should expect to be the subject of public scrutiny that might be viewed as burdensome if applied to other citizens and must accept restrictions imposed by the code. So if you think you might want to get involved with some sort of um, social movement or attend a march or a rally or a protest, I think you have to proceed very, very cautiously. There is an opinion that's about two years old, it's formal opinion 1806, and you want to read that because that discusses what both judges and judicial staff members can and can't do in this area. Um, it, actually, it was an ethics opinion that was requested by judicial staff members, not judges. But when the committee decided to issue an opinion, um, it decided that we would break it into two parts, talk about what judges could and couldn't do, and then what court employees could and couldn't do. So if you haven't read it, and if you, know, if you have staff that are active in these kinds of movements, um, I think it would be a good idea for you to make them aware of this opinion. So, um, Opinion 1806 um, has a, a lot of points. Um, I just put a few of the bullet points up on the slides, but before you attend a march, a rally, or a protest, you have to consider whether your participation 
would appear to a reasonable person to undermine your independence, integrity, or impartiality, or if it would demean the judicial office. And um, the second bullet point on, I think it's slide eight, um, is similar to what I was talking about with the recusal issues. It's not really, the question is not whether you in your heart of hearts believe that you're impartial. You have to assume that your participation is going to be scrutinized and publicized even. And you have to consider what the public perception will be um, if you, a judge, are depicted in media accounts or social media accounts of the event um, and, and what that would look like in terms of your independence and partiality um, and integrity. The other thing that the opinion says is you have to look at not just the official title of the event, but also its stated mission and who the sponsors and organizers are. And an example of this um, was the Women's March. I think those first came into being um, almost four years ago. And you know, if you look at the title Women's March, well, what does that tell you? But the Massachusetts um, Supreme Court was one of the first courts in the country to issue an ethics opinion in this area, and it was about the Women's March in 2016 or early 2017. Um, and it said, that you need to go and look at what the organizers are saying about this march. And if you did that, you would see that it was very political in nature. The organizers had said the purpose of this march is to send a, a, a message to the new administration on their first day at office. Um, and so it's not enough to just look at oh, women's march, immigration march. You have to see what the mission is and who the sponsors are. Because if the sponsor is an entity, and, and this probably wouldn't apply as much in the justice courts, but for example, there was an immigration march in Phoenix a couple of years ago, and it was sponsored by the ACLU. Well, the ACLU is a frequent litigant in state court proceedings. And so a judge who participated in that would absolutely, at a minimum, need to disclose that involvement should he or she have a case involving the ACLU as a party. But I, I think the opinion also suggests that you need to be very careful and probably avoid attending marches, rallies, or protests that are sponsored by um, people who are litigants in your court. Um, the other thing I think like 10 is the opinion says, unless you're involved in one of these activities that directly relates to the law, the legal system, or the administration of justice, that you should refrain from publicizing your affiliation with the judicial branch. Um, so you shouldn't wear one of your shirts that has your court logo or stop to be interviewed by the press and talk about, well, as a judge. And, and again, there's an exception for matters relating directly to the law, the legal system, or the administration of justice. But if you're out there on one of these other causes, you, you again, proceed cautiously, but as a private citizen can do some things as long as you don't bring the judicial branch into the activity. So I think that's an important opinion. I've, I've been getting some questions recently about what judges can and can't do with getting involved in some of the social issues that are facing us today. Now, election, political activities. Um, so you may not know this, but we're recording this today on August 4th, which is primary election day. So this is a very timely topic. Um, but we see a lot of problems, not just with judicial candidates, um, but with sitting judges. And so I'm going to cover both judicial candidates more briefly. Um, Canon 4 deals with judicial candidates. We've also created a brochure that we have hard copies of, but it's also on our website. It's called Guidelines for Candidates Seeking Judicial Office. And it summarizes all of the provisions that are relevant, all of the ethics opinions that are relevant. Um, and so we typically give that to the Secretary of State and all the county recorders um, during election season so that they can hand it out to the candidates. Um, I know one thing that's frustrating to you all as sitting judges, kind of frustrating to the commission as well, a jurisdiction over judicial candidates. We don't have jurisdiction over non-judges. The Constitution gives the commission jurisdiction over judges. So we don't acquire jurisdiction over a judicial candidate unless he or she wins the election. So what happens when there's a complaint filed against a judicial candidate who is not yet a judge is that we do forward that complaint to the candidate. If, if we can, we point out the rules that it appears that that person may be violating. 
And we tell them that if you are successful in your election, we're going to reassess this complaint. And there have been instances where the commission has disciplined someone who was not a judge at the time, was a judicial candidate, but won his or her election, and then faced disciplinary action based on their judicial campaign activities. Um, it's frustrating to you all that not a lot can be done when people are out there just clearly flaunting the um, rules as candidates, but we don't have jurisdiction to do more, so that's the problem there. Um, the common problems that we see with judicial candidates are and we see some judges make or judicial candidates make statements like, "Well, I assumed my staff knew the rules and had read the code." Well, you can't assume that. I mean, you have to you have to make sure that they've read it. And then the code requires candidates to review and approve the content of all campaign statements and materials before dissemination. That's Rule 4.2A3. So it's not going to be persuasive to say, "Well, you hired competent staff, told them to read the code, and assumed that they had followed it." Um, other common problems, and I mean, this one is just a, a black and white no, um, personally accepting or soliciting campaign contributions. So obviously, I think most people know you, you couldn't do that in person, but where it gets, it, it shouldn't be more nuanced, but I think people see nuance that doesn't exist, is they do it on social media, which is the same thing. Um, judge, judges who are up for election have to be very careful about what they say and do on their social media sites. Um, the, the pleas for contributions need to come from someone else, usually the campaign um, committee treasurer. And somebody told me recently that the Maricopa County election put for some sort of materials that include a statement that the code prohibits a judge from serving as a campaign treasurer. And while I agree that a judge can't serve as a campaign treasurer because the role of the treasurer is to solicit and accept funds, and a judge can't do that, um, the code doesn't specifically say that. But you get to the same point because Rule 4.186 says that you cannot solicit or accept campaign contributions. And as far as I know, that's the role of a campaign treasurer. The other common problem is judges who solicit or publicize endorsements by law enforcement. Um, there's a formal ethics opinion that prohibits that. It's opinion 96-12. Um, a judge cannot portray him or herself as a law enforcement uh, candidate or endorsed by law enforcement. And if you think about it, and if you read the opinion, I think the reasons are kind of obvious. Um, it would tend to raise in a defendant's mind um, questions about your impartiality if you hold yourself out as pro-law enforcement and endorsed by law enforcement. The other problem that we've seen, and we've seen judges um, have discipline imposed by using their court email, or really any court resources, but court email is the one that we've seen the most problems with. And sometimes it, it seems sort of innocuous, you know, a judge gets an email on their court account from someone saying, hey, I'll take a yard sign, and then they write back about it without thinking, um, just don't use your court email for any campaign purposes, or really any political purposes at all. So those are the, the issues that we see with candidates. But now I want to talk more broadly about um, just election and political activity in general, because I think a lot of judges aren't real clear on, on what they can and can't do um, outside of their own elections. So you, as a judge, a judicial candidate, members of your personal staff, courtroom clerks, and court managers have the highest level of restrictions on them when it comes to political activities. Um, and the next slide defines what a court manager is. And I actually think in the justice courts, you all have a position called court managers. In some courts, it's, it's a little unclear. But anyway, the code defines who a court manager is. Um, and so the next slide, um, that's what I was just trying to say. Judges, personal staff members, courtroom clerks, and court managers have the same high-level restrictions on their political activities as judges. Um, and in a few slides, I'm going to remind you that you have a supervisory obligation over your staff to uh, ensure that they're complying with their ethical obligations. So it's important in my mind that you have a conversation with your staff people so that they know what they can and can't do in this realm. And some of these slides later on will make it a little more clear, including this one. So judges, judicial candidates, 
your personal staff members, your courtroom clerks, and your court managers cannot act as leaders in or hold office in political organizations. You can't make speeches on behalf of political organizations or candidates for public office. You can't publicly endorse or oppose candidates for public office, except you can obviously oppose your opponent in your own race. Um, you can't solicit funds for political organizations or candidates, and you cannot actively participate in a campaign other than your own. And that includes circulating, nominating petitions for others. And as I said before, with judicial candidates, you cannot use court staff, court facilities, or other court resources for any political activities. And that includes court email. Now, this is one that is in the, I'm sure you know this, but I'll remind you that there is a code of conduct for judicial employees. And when I was a judge, I would, um, especially around election time, and especially when I hired new staff and new law clerks who were very into social media, I would require them to read the Code of Conduct for Judicial Employees, particularly Canon 4, which deals with political activity. So this is one provision that I think is violated. Um, and it's very clear. It says, during scheduled work hours or at the workplace, judicial employees shall not engage in political campaign activity and shall not display literature, badges, stickers, signs, or other political advertisements on behalf of any party, political committee, agency, candidate for political office or ballot measure. It's pretty clear. So if somebody at their workplace has a bumper sticker or a button, um, you as a judge have an ethical obligation to tell them to um, remove it. Bumper stickers, who knew? Um, the Code of Conduct for Judicial Employees also says, a personal vehicle parked in a space or a parking lot reserved and identified for court employees is covered by these workplace limitations. Where such reserved parking exists, displaying political materials on vehicles brings political advocacy to the workplace because the parking lot is part of the workplace. Um, so another, another trap for the unwary. So campaign signs. Um, this one gets a little um, nuanced because, well, let's say that you live alone and you want to put out a, a yard sign for a candidate. Clearly, you cannot do that because, remember, Judges cannot publicly endorse or oppose any candidate for public office. But a few years ago, in 2016, we had an ethics inquiry from a judge who had a spouse who was very politically active. And so the judge wanted to know, okay, is my spouse prohibited from putting a sign in the yard because we live in the same house, it's community property. It's an interesting opinion. I, I think it's correct. I think it has perhaps very little practical value. But if you think about it, even though judges lose a lot of their First Amendment rights when they assume the bench, their family members don't. Their family members are still, with some very minor limitations, allowed to participate in the political process. And so this opinion, opinion 1603, recognizes that and says that a judge should explain the public perception issues and ask his or her spouse not to place political signs on their jointly owned property and that the judge has complied with the code by engaging in this discussion and making this request, even if the spouse or significant other ultimately decides to place a political sign on their property. Um, I mean, I think that's the right result. The one thing, though, if you do have family members who are politically active, they need to be very careful not to bring you into their activities. It's one thing for them to go out and campaign for um, a candidate or initiative measure. What they can't do is bring you into it by saying, well, yeah, my husband or my wife is, all, is a judge, and he or she also supports this, but he, he or she can't say that publicly. They need to know that they, they draw the line um, when it involves you. So that's the story about campaigns. Um, occasionally, we get asked whether judges can sign petitions, and the answer is yes. There's a formal opinion, 2003-05. Um, but just remember, petitions can never be circulated in a courthouse. Now, social media. Um, I, I'm friends with a lot of um, judges and court personnel on various social media, and I see a lot of violations um, during political season. So I want to spend just a few minutes um, talking about common problems and some disciplinary actions that have occurred. Um, Ethics Opinion 1401 is a very comprehensive opinion from the Arizona Judicial Ethics Advisory Committee that deals with the use of social media by both judges and court staff. If you haven't read it, or if your staff members haven't read it, because I'll tell you most staff members, especially the younger ones, have lots of social media um, 
platforms. Um, so read that opinion, give it to your staff members, but one of the things that's relevant on there in that opinion about election cycle is that judges, judges, personal staff members, and court managers cannot friend or like or whatever the equivalent is on some of the other sites I'm not as familiar with, um, campaign pages, because that's the functional equivalent of saying, I support you. Um, so now I'm going to go through a few discipline cases from other states because I'm trying to think, Arizona has had some public discipline of judges for improper political campaign activity. Um, and we've also had some public discipline for improper use of social media, but it wasn't in the political realm. Yeah, I hope never. But I'm going to give you some examples from other states where judges got into trouble. Enray um, Lopez is a Texas discipline case where a judge was publicly reprimanded for sharing other candidates' campaign materials on his own Facebook page. And the Texas Disciplinary Commission rejected the judge's that he hadn't authorized the postings and wasn't aware of them. And that would not be a persuasive defense in Arizona either, because as I told you, our code requires you to um, ensure that others don't do on your behalf what you yourself can't do. Um, the next slide is the case out of Florida. This one I thought was really harsh, honestly. This was a, a female judge whose husband was um, a judicial candidate as well. Um, so she's a sitting judge, he's a judicial candidate. So she makes one Facebook post asking her friends to help her husband write misstatements that his opponent was making about him. Um, when she, when charges were filed against her, she admitted that there had been a code violation and apologized. She said she intended the post to be a private message to her friends and that she removed it after realizing it could reach beyond her circle of friends. So this is, to, this, to me, this is the very harsh part. The Florida Supreme Court accepted her stipulation to a 30-day suspension without pay. Um, she and the Florida Disciplinary Council had previously agreed to a public reprimand, and their Supreme Court rejected that, saying it wasn't harsh enough. I mean, I, I think I think a 30-day suspension without pay for that one isolated violation is harsh. I, I don't know what our Arizona Commission would do, but that strikes me as harsh. But it's sort of a a reminder. Um, the next case is out of Tennessee, and again, this was one where a judge had posted on social media about political candidates. He was supporting Trump, opposing Clinton, um, and he also posted expressing strong partisan positions on Black Lives Matter, uh, professional athletes kneeling, and transgender bathrooms. And the next slide, um, I, I, it's kind of an extended quote from the Tennessee Board of Judicial Conduct, but I, I thought it sort of brought home the problems here. The, the, that board said that the judge fully recognized the errors in sharing these types of social media posts, that the judge acknowledged the public's confidence in the judiciary is undermined when a judge's conduct simply creates the perception that cases have been prejudged or that there's a political bias against the party. Um, and then the, it continued, and so furthermore, you, the judge, are acutely aware that the dissemination of these types of articles and images on your social media platform could have easily been perceived by reasonable minds to undermine the impartiality of the judiciary or be perceived as, and that's not a typo, it's prejudice or bias, it should be prejudiced, but anyway. Um, so you, you just have to be really careful posting about social issues and certainly about politics. Um, another one, just to show that um, discipline is even-handed, it doesn't matter which side of the political spectrum you fall on, a Utah judge, again, six months suspension without pay for social media posts and in-court comments critical of President Trump. Um, Utah Supreme Court said Judge Kwan's behavior denigrates his reputation as an impartial, independent, dignified, and courteous jurist who takes no advantage of the office in which he serves. Um, so, and then I, I think I have a redundant slide. Uh, although the second part of uh, slide 30, um, this is an observation that I think it, it transcends the political and social media realm, but the court noted that it's an immutable and universal rule that judges are not as funny as they think they are. If someone laughs at a judge's joke, there is a decent chance that the laughter was dictated by the courtroom's power dynamic and not by a genuine belief that the joke was funny. So this is sort of a digression, but you see a lot of judges who are trying to be cute or funny or talking sound bites, and it backfires so often. I mean, as a judge, I've struggled with that a lot because 
you, you want to humanize the courtroom experience, but you have to be so careful with the use of humor because what you view as funny or what I view as funny sometimes is not viewed as funny at all by the litigants. So I don't know. I did still use humor occasionally, but I was very, very careful about it. Uh, and then I think one more cautionary tale. This is a court commissioner, Gianquinto. And again, this is one where he had posted a lot on Facebook about politics and social issues. Um, he resigned and agreed never to hold judicial office. And you can read the California court's sort of excoriation of him about why all of this was a really bad thing. So I do a, a, a standalone segment on social media. It's at least an hour long, but with its prevalence both in election cycles and just personal um, sites that judges maintain, it is a minefield of ethics violations. You can navigate it, but you have to be so careful. You can never rely on your privacy settings. You have to assume that everything you post will be disseminated. People can take a screenshot. It doesn't matter that you only have friends who are family members. Um, you just have to assume everything you say will be publicized and perhaps splash on the front page of the Republic or more likely the yellow sheet. So my last slide, I think is perhaps the most important slide. It's um, about the Judicial Ethics Advisory Committee. This is a nine-person committee of the Supreme Court, and we exist to try to help you stay out of trouble. But there are a couple of caveats. Um, you have to contact us, and your point of contact is me. My email address is on that slide. Um, and you have to contact me before you do whatever it is you're considering, and you have to be asking about your own conduct. So you can't call me and ask, hey, Judge Russell did X, is that okay? I can't tell you that. But if Judge Russell calls me and says, I'm contemplating doing X, would that be okay? Then I'm, I'm happy to help you. Um, the committee requires me to keep a verbatim um, record of the question posed and the response given. So for that reason, I very, very rarely have telephone calls um, about this because it's too difficult to recreate exactly what was asked and exactly um, my response. So send me an email. I'm usually able to get back with you within a day, sometimes two days. And most of the inquiries that we get are resolved informally by email. Um, if it's a question that has a lot of um, potential for recurring and such as the judges participation in marches rallies and protests we will issue a formal opinion um, and we do that several times a year we're working on one right now i can't remember the topic is but charlie requested it so i'm sure it's a good one i don't know when that's going to i'll check on that <laughs> mine was on the interplay of uh of unauthorized practice of law in the americans with disabilities act that's what it is, yes. So one of our committee members is working on that and that reminds me, I'll follow up on where that one stands. So those are all of my remarks. Um, I would ask for questions, but I've only got Charlie and Judge Russell, so. Let me, let me add one point to that, if I can, sure. Margaret. Um, you know, a lot of us have gotten better with social media as over the last few years. I'm one of those dinosaurs, though, who still struggles. And while I rarely post, I do worry that my fingers hit the wrong keys once in a while. I actually have my youngest daughter, every couple of months, go through my Facebook and look to see if I've liked somebody that I shouldn't have liked. She actually caught when the first, uh, when the advisory opinion came out, something that, that I needed to clean up very quickly. And it was simply a fat finger. It was never an intentional, but we all are capable of doing that. We all need to be looking and on a regular basis, make sure that we're not out of compliance with the expectations. I totally agree with what you just said. And, and I think if you're going to maintain a social media press, presence you have to exercise constant vigilance and and, and some yeah either fat or, or just inadvertence you forget that oh i can't like the re-elect sheriff whoever um so all right so i'm going to hand it over to judge russell at this point thank you margaret i i it's always great to be able to listen to you 
there's always things that I'm taking notes on that I have to go back and double check myself on because it is a constant vigilance with when it comes to ethics that we all need to be paying attention to. Charlie had asked that I talk about a couple of additional topics. One of them is the wellness checks that we are all going through, at least in Maricopa County, and I believe around the state, whenever you enter the courtroom. It's interesting when you do it every day, or sometimes twice a day if you leave the building and have to come back from lunch, it becomes a habit and you may not be thinking about what you're being asked and what's going on, but you should have security in all the Maricopa County Justice Courts or all the Maricopa County Courts hold up a document with eight questions on it and you ought to be being asked do you have any of these symptoms? Most of us, after a week or two of doing that, quit reading those symptoms probably. But you need to have it in your mind as you're thinking about it. And if you actually read, you should have asked yourself those same questions every morning before you came to the court building. Now the first seven of them are pretty straightforward. Do you have a fever? Do you have a cough? Shortness of breath, muscle pain, sore throat loss of taste or smell, a new loss of taste or smell. Um, but the seventh one may be missing some context. It says, have you had contact in the last 14 days with somebody who tested positive for COVID-19 or who had symptoms, had the symptoms listed above in the first seven items? That's an important one to be thinking about before you come to the court. The other part of that is you're going to get your temperature taken. That's an important part and we all need to do this and think about what's really happening here. What we're asking you to do is to help protect the rest of the people in that court building. And you're asking them to help protect you. Charlie? And I do want to point out for the pro tems that are listening, you know, I've been a pro tem for a very long time and had never ever called in sick because you don't want to risk uh, losing favor with the judge or the court manager by calling in sick at the last minute. Uh, this, this is a change. Uh, if, if you have a cough, stay home. If you, if you have a sore throat or a fever, stay home. Uh, we've, we've told our court managers that they have to understand it's better to struggle to, to cover the court calendar than it is to have a pro tem come in and potentially infect the staff and the litigants. Thank you. And, and this is that's important and it's important for staff. If we have any staff who's listening to this too, please help us. We absolutely understand that you may be concerned about a paycheck, but here's my promise to you. If you will be honest with us, we will work with you as much as we can to help make sure that there's no additional consequences that don't have to occur. The HR department is very happy to talk through with any staff member, any pro tem, any of these potential questions prior to their coming to the court. In this last week's newsletter, it was stated that there were more than five dozen, at 60 people, more than five dozen <coughs> Justice Court employees who have been exposed to somebody with COVID-19. We've had 16 of our co-workers have had the disease. Well. That first number of 60 means that people have reached out and been honest with us about who they've been hanging out with. It's an important part to remember. Let me encourage everybody to participate with that. Another thing that Charlie had asked about is conducting virtual meetings. When we talk about conducting virtual meetings, the first thing I think that we need to be talking about is who are we letting in our court buildings? We have the administrative orders that Margaret talked about from the Supreme Court, and then we have one from Judge Welty, the presiding judge of the Maricopa County Superior Court, and they talk about what was the expectation of people coming into the courtroom. 
with criminal cases, there is a little bit more of a nuance because of some of the constitutional requirements. But Judge Welty, in his most recent order, makes a statement. It remains the presumption that processing or proceedings be conducted via audio or video unless otherwise both authorized by the order and deemed necessary by the judge. When I talk to people, I tell them that basically means if you're going to have people in your courtroom, there's two decisions that you need to be making. Do the administrative orders authorize them coming in? And then, is it necessary? I think both of those need to happen. Judge Welty goes on for civil cases, particularly, and talking about civil matters, including trials to the bench, are to be conducted via audio or video through phase two. We are still in phase one at this date. And he goes on to say, unless an in-person proceeding is deemed necessary by the assigned judge. Again, a conscious decision needs to be made about somebody being in the courtroom. Now let's talk about what happens in that virtual courtroom setting. There's really two different types of operations in a virtual courtroom. One includes video, one is simply on the phone. For our larger calendars, like evictions or arraignments, having people on the phone in a Scopia type format, which is the one that we're using in Maricopa County and started using when we went to this format, that's strictly the phone people are calling in. It may be appropriate to be using that there, but let me encourage everyone to be utilizing video whenever they can. It may be more challenging if you have a whole lot of litigants, but for all of your hearings, for all of your trials, for all of the areas where you can schedule a video to go along with the audio, let me encourage you to do that. It adds, and I have been getting people litigants requesting that our courts are using more video so that the parties can see each other. In those go-to-meeting, for example, type settings, people can still call in on the phone. It doesn't exclude them, but it gives them the option to be there um, with the video. Be patient in your video settings. Remember, you as the judicial officer set the tone. It's no different than when you have people in your courtroom. You need to set the tone on the phone. You need to um, tell litigants what to expect. Perhaps you need to do a little bit more of an explanation than you do when they're in the courtroom setting to help them understand what's going on. And quite frankly, I'm, I'm going to tell a story about myself here. It's okay to say this is a new environment and we're struggling once in a while. I actually was doing a civil trial last week. I'm trying to keep track of all the moving parts and all of the exhibits have been provided to the court prior to the trial. And partway through one particular witness's testimony, for the life of me, I could not remember if I'd sworn him in. I had to stop partway through the proceeding and say, this is a new environment, I'm sorry, I'm not quite as comfortable yet. Did I swear you in? And I had to ask the litigant the question. It's better to ask the question than to worry about it for the next week. Please slow down, please be careful. Don't worry about how it appears as much as it you dot the appropriate I's and cross the appropriate T's. Charlie had also asked about issuing warrants. This is a hard question. Issuing a warrant, warrant can have ramifications that go beyond just the defendant. But we actually, as we have talked about this in bench meetings or other settings, have different courts who have tried to be respectful of the people and the constituents who come to their court. So some of the courts have been more 
have slowed the warrant issuing process down more than other courts. But as this has continued, I think we're all facing the challenge of how long can we be in a little bit slower process. Let me share with you what I've done in my court. When all of this first hit, I was a little bit more concerned about issuing warrants. I still did on the more egregious cases. I felt it was an important part of what we do in the judiciary. However, for a whole lot of minor cases, I was not issuing warrants, but I had discussions with my staff actually in the month of July started issuing warrants for non-appearance. It was interesting, I talked yesterday with the staff and said, are we seeing more people being arrested? They told me that during the month of July, since we started issuing non-appearance warrants, we've had 10 people arrested. All of them but one, the IA judge, or initial appearance judge, released OR. On the last one, or the one that did require a bond, the bond was only $10. I think people are recognizing throughout the process the challenges and being respectful of that. I'm actually getting ready for non-payment of fines. And let me, before I go there though, let me talk about issuing warrants for not appearance. I put additional restrictions on. I am not allowing a warrant to be issued until at least a full week after somebody missed a court appearance. If somebody missed it by accident, if, if whatever the situation, they get in touch with the court, we continue to see the phrase in all of the Supreme Court's administrative orders that say, judges shall liberally grant continuances and make accommodations. I think that's a critical statement that we need to be considering. We don't want to put people in challenging situations more than we need to we also need to be conducting the business of the court finding the appropriate balance there is not easy one of the things that we started was doing more outreach to all of our litigants as soon as we recognized people were not coming into the courtroom so we're sending letters we're making phone calls we're using emails we're trying to remind our litigants of their obligations to at least communicate with the court. And I've talked to all of my pro tems and I encourage judges to do this so that you're all on the same pages in your court as to how to treat it, but to be respectful of somebody who at least is contacting the court and asking for a continuance, asking for an accommodation. The other part is issuing warrants for failure to pay. That's a more challenging because of the economic conditions that we have going on. I'm not sure that there's a necessarily a best answer on issuing warrants, but I do want to encourage everybody to be careful and make it a thoughtful process. Be respectful of what's going on. Charlie had also asked about sending people to jail. This is a challenging one also. I've already, well, I haven't talked to you, so let me talk to you about the virus in the Maricopa County Jail. About a month ago, we were being told that almost 50% of the inmates in the jail either had been tested or were suspected of being positive with the virus. Things are a little bit better today. So we're on election day, we're on August 4th is when this recording's being made. And a few days ago, we were told that that number was still about 40% of the inmates in the jail were either tested or assumed, believed to be positive with the virus. Sending somebody to jail right now has additional consequences that we didn't have six months ago. It's not only consequences for those inmates or those defendants, it's also consequences for the jail staff. And I would suggest to you for the family of the jail staff. It's a bigger audience that you need to be thinking about when you talk about those consequences. 
Right now, we are trying, except in the most egregious cases, not to be sending somebody to jail. We recognize that we are going to have to get back to this. We hope that they are going to have better numbers down the road where this is going to be more possible. But right now, let me encourage everybody again to make it a conscious decision to be careful if you have to, if it's needful, you utilize that and you meet those obligations that are required in certain settings with sentencing like such as a DUI. But in Maricopa County, we're pleased to announce that we're getting very close to being able to have home detention. We're probably just several weeks away from that. And one of the neat things with home detention was it used to be you had to do the jail time first before you could do the portion of the, of the home detention, the Supreme Court through an administrative order has allowed us, allowed us to do the home detention first. Remember with home detention, you have a minimum of at least one day in jail or 20% of the confinement order needs to be served in jail. But we now have the option of doing the home detention first one when that becomes available and the jail time second. With that, Charlie, were there other areas that you felt like we needed to be covering that are real time for the, for the, for the challenges that our judges are facing today? I did want to tell a story about uh, in one morning when I did initial appearances, and I'm doing them by video, and they brought in a defendant um, all by himself because he had already tested positive for COVID and he had been arrested for trying to urinate on hospital staff and other people in the hospital while he's uh, positive for COVID and so of course I asked him and if you are released where are you going to go and he said well I am currently taking care of an elderly man and um, I just went like oh my god <laughs> Uh, that's probably the worst thing you could have told me. Uh, and you know, while we're trying to keep people out of jail, uh, I thought, and, and while we normally for initial appearances want to consider the whether or not they're going to return for their court date and public safety, uh, this was the first time I bonded someone uh, for public health safety because it just concerned me that if this person were to be released, how many additional people would he contaminate? So uh, I just thought that that was a, a little interesting ethical situation. And with that being said, uh, Ms. Downey, uh, Judge Russell, do either of you have anything else to add? I don't, thank you. All right, and again, the materials will be found in Hightail. The COJET certificate will be in, in Hightail as well. I hope you have enjoyed this podcast and found it as valuable as I have. Uh, stay safe, stay healthy.